The following is a Westminster Seminary, California morning devotion given by Dr. Dennis Johnson. For more information about this message or about Westminster Seminary, California, visit us online, wscal.edu, or call 888-480-8474. Online, wscal.edu, or call 888-480-8474. Join your hearts with mine as we pray together. Our God, as we reflect on your kindness and your strength and your defense of your church over the centuries, as we give thanks for uh, the spark of light that was rekindled through Luther and Calvin and others uh, 500 years ago, and the fact that we still, by your grace, live in that light that radiates from the scriptures, we give you thanks. Thank you uh, for the man who was God-man, who was on our side, Christ Jesus. Thank you for the word that stands, that proclaims him to us, your inerrant scriptures. Thank you for the spirit and the gifts that you give, uh, that he, the spirit, carries the work of Christ into our lives, into our experience, giving us faith, drawing us to rest and trust in Jesus, and then engaging in his lifelong work to transform us into the image of your beloved son. Thank you for all these things. Now open our hearts to hear your word in these few moments we have together. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> in these devotions this semester, we've been looking at the epistle to the Galatians, uh, one of Luther's favorites, of course, and uh, justifiably so, uh, the word of God that tells us the good news of God's grace that justifies us through faith alone in Christ alone. And we've seen that whether we realize it or not, we're thirsty for grace. We need to be unmasked by grace to be shown our need. Then we also need to be embraced by grace, welcomed by grace. And now we're going to think today about being transformed by grace. We're going to focus on Galatians 5, but I want us to hear a few verses from earlier chapters uh, about the work of the Spirit. Galatians 3, verses 1 through 3. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? And then verse 13, same chapter. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. And then chapter 4, verses 4, 5, and 6. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And then the text we'll reflect on today, 513 to the end of the chapter. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. 
For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. This is God's holy word. May he write it on our hearts. Well, in the eyes of the opponents of the Reformation, the big problem with the core solas, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, was sanctification. Luther and the other reformers saw and preached from God's word that guilty people can be assured of God's complete forgiveness, his vindicating verdict, his, the embrace of his grace forever by trusting solely in Jesus' blood and righteousness, even though subjectively we still far for, fall far short of the holiness that God is delighted with in our own daily lives. So the critics of the Reformation charged, if you're serious about faith alone, if you teach people they don't have to try to be as good as they possibly can be to have assurance that their sins are forgiven and God is pleased with them, they can merely trust in Jesus' obedient life and sacrificial death as the, as the all-sufficient ground for their justification, they will just settle down complacently in self-centeredness and sin. How are you going to make people strive to resist temptation and obey God's commands unless you drive it, them to it by threats or at least draw them to it with a promise of reward that's always slightly out of reach? It's the problem of how do you motivate people to pursue holiness. Our problem with sanctification is not usually that we don't know what God is pleased with what he commands and what displeases him, what, what, what he forbids. Our problem is motive and our problem is power. Why should I do what I know would please God? How can I find within me the desire to do that? And the, the opponents of the Reformation, you know, we, we gather from Paul's letters, the opponents of Paul's gospel in the first century as well, said if you don't have that threat... If you don't have that uncertainty, what motive can you possibly use to draw people into holiness? Paul, some of people who, some people apparently who saw themselves as Paul's friends drew the same conclusion. Uh, that's why when Paul says, for example, at the end of Romans 5 and the beginning of Romans 6, that uh, he's announced that where sin has abounded, 
grace abounded all the more. Paul says, now somebody's going to say, so then we shall sin more, right? So the grace can abound all the more. Paul has to say, no, no, may it never be. God forbid. Absolutely not. And if that was coming out of the mouths of Paul's friends, you feel like if you have friends like this, who needs enemies? But Paul did have enemies, of course, who thought that this preaching of such free grace made him soft on sin and lax about pursuing holiness. And the reformers faced the same thing as well. That's why the framers of the Belgic Confession, the confession of the churches in the low countries of Holland and Belgium, um, had to answer that specifically in talking about what saving faith is. It rests and trusts wholly in Christ. And then they go on to say, how does this relate to sanctification? We believe that this true faith, produced in people by the hearing of God's word and the work of God's Holy Spirit, regenerates them and makes them a new creation, causing them to live the new life and freeing them from slavery to sin. Therefore, and here's their answering the objection to the gospel rediscovered in the Reformation. Therefore, far from making people cold toward living in a pious and holy way, this justifying faith, quite to the contrary, so works within them that apart from it, they will never do a thing out of love for God, but only out of love for themselves and fear of being condemned. You see, if you want people to obey God for God's sake, rather than for their own sake, to delight him rather than just to escape the consequences of sin, the only power that can ignite that kind of love for God, for his sake, not our sake, is the grace that embraces us when we know we don't deserve it. And sets that question of our performance as a factor in our relationship with God to one side because it rests all on Jesus' performance. That's what makes us love. That's what produces real obedience. John said it back in his first epistle, 1 John 4, 9. We love because he first loved us. And so Paul talks a lot about that wonderful love, about the love of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, Galatians 2.20. A lot about justification. But he says, actually, in this letter, as much, perhaps, about the work of the Spirit. Because God doesn't just rely on the logic of the gospel. If he loved us so, mustn't we love him just as much? He, he knows our hearts, and so he also gives, with the grace of justification, with that act, that legal verdict, not guilty, no better, positively righteous, he gives with that the renewing, transforming work of the Spirit. Paul uses the language group related to justification, justify, righteous, righteousness, 13 times in Galatians. He mentions the Spirit 16 times. Now, word counts don't tell us everything. I know that. But it does mean that if we go to Galatians only to think about ammunition, about justification, and ignore all that Paul says about the Spirit, we have missed something very significant. And you noticed, as we heard those first few verses of Galatians 3, that Paul links together hearing about Christ crucified and embracing that message by faith with the Spirit's work. And not only does he do that, but then he says, if you began that way, trusting in Christ as he's proclaimed, emblazoned for us on the cross, and 
as your urge to trust in him, and the spirit is at work in that. He says, if you start that way, that's the way you've got to finish. You can't finish any other way than by trusting in Christ and experiencing, therefore, the power of the Holy Spirit. See, his point is that Jesus is not a savior who only saves us halfway. He doesn't just deal with our legal problem, although that's absolutely central. But he also deals with our subjective problem, with our, the corruption of our hearts. Uh, we sang some weeks ago Top Lady's hymn, or Rock of Ages, where we asked in Top Lady's words, be of sin the double cure, cleanse me from its guilt and power, or some, some versions say, save from wrath, there's the legal, and make me pure, there's the subjective. It's both. It's both. Well, now with all that preamble, now to Galatians 5. Right. Three things, just to see in Galatians 5. This is, this is the most extension, extensive um, discussion of the work of the Spirit in Galatians, although it's all over, his work is all over this letter. And he's contrasting, as you know, this, the fruit of the Spirit from the deeds or the acts or the works of the flesh. And he gets into it by, again, reminding us of our freedom in Christ. And he doesn't explicitly mention the Spirit in verses 13, 14, and 15, but clearly he has in view that the Spirit is the one who has drawn us to Christ so that we now enjoy this amazing freedom. And we use this freedom not to please ourselves, but we use this freedom to serve others. Now, you know the New Testament has a bunch of words for service. This is one of the more severe words. This is not just a nice kind of everyday household servant kind of diakoneo kind of service. This is slavery. This is dulao. Be slaves to one another. You've been liberated, so now freely be slaves to one another in love. In love. Of course, Paul is simply applying again what Jesus himself taught his disciples, Mark 10 and, and parallels, that uh, leadership in his kingdom is servitude. It's being slave of all. And this slavery is shown in this glad willingness to let others' needs trump our convenience. Love. Obviously, in 1 Corinthians, Paul has a lot to say about the Spirit and his gifts. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, 14. A lot of things uh, are debated in the church today about how the Holy Spirit is at work. That was true in the first century as well. But notice that in 12, 13, and 14, the center point of Paul's whole discussion is 1 Corinthians 13. The greatest work of the Spirit is to produce in us this kind of love that is not touchy, that is ready to serve. And love outlasts all of the individual gifts that the Spirit gives to build his church. And love outranks even the other two lasting works of the Spirit, faith and hope. Self-sacrifice, other-serving's love, is a mark of a heart raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit shows how much his power changes us. Paul talks about the deeds of the flesh, and if you look through that list of the deeds of the flesh, you can tell that by flesh, as we all know, he doesn't just mean the body. Some of these are sins that the body does. Illicit sex, substance abuse, 
But most of the deeds of the flesh here are attitudes of the heart and mind that are fed by pride and arrogance and divisive. That much more in that list is about that. But Paul doesn't talk about the, the work of the Spirit. He talks about the fruit of the Spirit. Why? Why does he choose that difference? Well, we'll have to ask Paul someday. Maybe we will. Maybe we won't. My hunch is that it has to do with Old Testament background. Uh, it has to do with the organic agricultural imagery that uh, Paul would have been steeped in. Uh, Psalm 1, the individual whose life is steeped in Torah is like a tree planted by streams of water who bears his fruit in his season. Or Jeremiah 17, almost a parallel to Psalm 1, the man whose trust is in the Lord whose confidence is him is like a tree in is like a tree planted by the water that sends out its root and it never bears fails to bear fruit there's something about about drawing our strength depending day by day on god that produces fruit it it shows that we don't do this by our own teeth gritted effort it's the fruit of the spirit it's the fruit that really makes us resemble Christ. If we had time, and we obviously don't, to go through each of those, each of those fruits, or eat that fruit in all of its dimensions, love, joy, peace, patience, and so on, we would see that they're really just a profile of the Lord Jesus. Um, I would commend to you Dr. Fesco's little book, The Fruit of the Spirit Is, where he does that one by one. You can remember that title, right? The Fruit of the Spirit Is. Good little book. Don't have time to do it now. But it's really all about the Holy Spirit conforming us to the image of Christ. When our trust is in the Lord, Jeremiah 17. When our roots are planted by streams, we bear fruit. Or as Jesus said to his disciples, I am the vine, you are the branches. When you draw your life from me, you will bear much fruit. It's depending on him. So the Spirit bears fruit. And it shows in our attitudes, in our words, in our actions, in our relationships. It's not just inner, hidden heart things. It really shows. It flows from the heart and the Spirit's work, but it goes out. But now notice this. Paul is emphasizing, I think, in the image of fruit, he's emphasizing how utterly dependent we are on the Holy Spirit's life-giving work. And he surrounds that with, as it were, a summons to march. 5.16. 5.16, Paul says, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And then he contrasts, obviously, the works of the flesh, the fruit of the Spirit. And then he comes back around verse 25. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Different verbs there. Walk is Paul's ordinary word for talking about the way we conduct our lives. The one at the end, keep in step, is one that has a little bit more of a military flavor to it. It's, it's walking in the footsteps of the, of the leader. Uh, Paul talks in, in Romans about our following in the footsteps of our father Abraham. That's the word that he uses there as well. So it, it's not, the fruit of the Spirit doesn't make us passive. The, the fact that the Spirit bears the fruit uh, means that we are Active, that we rest and trust in him, we draw our strength from Christ, and then we step out. 
Think of the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant as Israel was about to enter the land and cross the Jordan River. God promised that they were going to cross that river just as their parents had crossed the Sea of Reeds on dry ground. But the river didn't stop flowing until the priests bearing the Ark, until their sandals touched the water's edge. So you and I can't sit back and say, well, when the Lord wants me to resist my self-centeredness, when the Lord wants me to care about others, when the Lord wants me to have a pure thought life, the Holy Spirit's going to do that for me just fine. And I'll just sort of, between now and then, I'll sort of let go and let God. No. We walk and keep in step with the Spirit. Those are commands. Depending on the Spirit, not resting in our strength, but depending on the Spirit, we step out. We take that first step. How does it begin? Well, probably, we certainly have to say it begins with prayer. That's why I wanted us to hear chapter 4, verses 4, 5, and 6. God sent the Spirit into our hearts because we are now sons adopted in Christ, and the Spirit cries out, Abba, Father. He teaches us to pray to God as Father. So we ask for strength, and then we step out. And we obey when we think we know better than the king. We forgive when we'd rather hold on to the grudge. We serve others when it's really our turn to be pampered. We take risks, maybe physical danger, or social rejection, or failure, or embarrassment. We take risks when we'd rather play it safe and stay in our comfort zones because we're drawing on the strength of the Holy Spirit. The Westminster Assembly emphasized that faith is the alone instrument of justification. It's by enabling us to trust in Christ that God unites us to Jesus and we receive his forgiving and his vindicating verdict. And then they immediately went on to say, yet is faith not alone in the person justified, but is rather accompanied by all other saving graces. God's grace in Christ's cross gives us the why to pursue holiness we love because he first loved us. And God's grace in Christ's cross, applied to us by the Holy Spirit, also gives us the how, gives us the power. Did you notice at the end here, Paul says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. He's reminding us the cross, Christ's cross, our union with Christ in his cross, we've been crucified with him. That's what has objectively made the difference between our being captives and slaves of sin and our being free sons of God. That's what happened at the cross. Sin's stranglehold, sin's tyranny was broken over us. And then the Holy Spirit comes in God's time and God's way, and he applies all that by uniting us vitally to Christ. And therefore, we get the benefit of Christ's representative action on our behalf. So the Spirit takes our death to sin's dominion, achieved once for all for us in Christ's death for us, and he carries that reality into the core of our being. So we walk by the Spirit. We keep in step with the Spirit, all in gratitude for the grace that has embraced us and will not let us go, and the grace that ongoingly transforms us, conforming us more and more to the image of Christ. Let's pray together.
Father, how thankful we are that Christ is a comprehensive Savior. The rescue he achieves is not only for us from our legal problems, our guilt and our lack of personal righteousness. He bore the curse for us hanging on the tree. More than that, he obeyed perfectly for us. And he is justified in his resurrection. He is declared righteous, the truly righteous one. And by grace, we are united in him as well. But not only has he dealt with that whole complex of issues, they're at the core of our problem, that we are your enemies apart from him. But he also, by the Spirit, is transforming us more and more into his own image. Father, thank you that you didn't just forgive us and leave us unchanged, but that you have forgiven and welcomed us, justified us, and now are transforming us by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Copyright 2017, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.